a pledge with God. They make a covenant and they say that they will obey the Lord. All of the Lord's, all the words the Lord has said, we will do. And after that, God gives Moses instructions about the priests and taxes and the Sabbath. And the Israelites grow impatient while God is talking to Moses and they create an idol for themselves. They break their covenant with God. And the Lord was going to destroy them, but Moses pleaded with God for his people. And so that covenant was renewed and the the tabernacle was erected. In Exodus 40, Moses finishes the work of building the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. God's presence is there among his people. But Moses was not able to enter the tent. He was not able to enter the tabernacle. In in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, we see that the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him as he stood outside of the tent, outside of the tabernacle. You look in Leviticus verse 1, chapter 1, you see on the screen there, it says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Why? Why was Moses not able to enter the tent? Because God is holy. And his people had violated their covenant with God. Yes, the covenant was renewed, but there needed to be reconciliation with God. There was a debt that they had to pay for their sins. And because God is holy in his nature, he cannot allow what is unholy to come near to him. He cannot allow sinful people to come near to him. In order for his people to come near, they must be holy. To be holy means to be set apart. It's set apart from something that is ordinary and common. It is set apart from something that is fallen and sinful. But it's not just set apart from something. It is set apart to God. Set apart for his purposes. Speaking biblically, to be holy means to be set apart to God for his purposes. And God himself is holy. In his being, he is altogether different, set apart from the people that he has made. God is the standard for holiness. He is morally pure without exception. The Israelites at this point, they are not in a state of holiness where they can come near to God. So if they are not holy, how can they be reconciled to their God? Because again, God desires to dwell with them. He wants to be in a relationship with his people. But there were obstacles So God would give them instruction on how to remove those obstacles. They're going to be given a solution by God on how they can be reconciled to him. And you see in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Moses was inside the tent as God was speaking to him. So something takes place between Exodus and Numbers. And the answer is found in Leviticus The book of Leviticus, I think a lot of times we might see it as something that's not really relevant to us because it's a lot of laws and regulations, but it's more than that. It's it's narrative. What is written in this book is crucial to understanding how God's people can be reconciled to him. I'm sure many of us started our Bible reading plan in January, hoping to finish the whole thing by December, and then in February we got to Leviticus. (laughs) And... That was the last we saw of our Bible reading plan. 
It's difficult to see how it's relevant to us. It's, it's weird rules and, and sacrifices, and it's just a stark contrast to New Testament Christianity and how we relate to God. But what's interesting is out of the 39 books in the Old Testament, Leviticus is the sixth most referenced book in the New Testament. So I think the, the New Testament authors wanted to draw our attention to this book. And when you get to it, you begin to see that this is really key. Leviticus is key to understanding God's plan for salvation. It deals with topics that are central to the life and ministry of Jesus. And when you read through it, it gives you a deeper appreciation and understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. This book also has a strong evidence that it is inspired by God. 34 times we read that the Lord spoke to Moses in Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses and Moses wrote down what God said to him. This is God-breathed scripture which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And so all of the commands that are in here, we should see as something that is valuable to our spiritual growth, to knowing God more. And of all the commands that God gave to Moses that he wrote down, the most important one in this book is to be holy because the Lord your God is holy. Holiness is a key theme to this book. The word holy occurs 92 times in Leviticus. And in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, God says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. This phrase, be holy as I am holy, occurs uh, several times throughout the book. And today I want to look at that passage, Leviticus 20, 26, and a couple other ones uh, for application. But before we look at that specific command that God gave to his people, I want to just give an overview of of Leviticus so that we can understand exactly what it is that God's people need to do to be holy. Leviticus is is full of commands and instruction, uh, instruction to God's people to help them understand his will. And all this is given for the purpose of making them holy so that they can be reconciled to God. Uh, as a literary, literary structure, uh, Leviticus is set up as a chiasm. Jim Wilson went over this a couple weeks ago when he was here preaching. Uh, it has rituals uh, on the bookends there, and then priests, purity, and in the middle of the book is a day of atonement, and then purity, priests, and rituals. So let's start with the rituals. In the first half of the book, there are uh, ritual sacrifices. There are sacrifices for thanksgiving, grain and fellowship, meant to give thanks to God. And there were forgiveness sacrifices. These are the burnt offerings, the sacrifices made for purification, for restitution. They were meant to atone for sin. In the second half of Leviticus, we see the instructions about uh, the feasts, the ritual feasts, and you see them listed there. These sacrifices and these rituals were meant to point the Israelites to a greater truth about who God is. It was meant to be part of their worship to God. Everything that God commanded, they were to do. And everything that God commanded them to do was to remind them about who God is. The grain offerings reminded them that he is their provider that provided that to them. The slaying of the animals and the sprinkling of the blood reminded them that their sins needed to be atoned for. 
The burnt offering served as a tangible reminder of God's justice. They would smell that animal burning, and it would be a reminder of the seriousness of sin and its consequences. These were symbols to the Israelites. Think about our rituals. When we observe communion, we have the cup and the bread. They are symbols that the Holy Son of God made an atoning sacrifice for our sin. When we pray before a meal, it's not to make the food taste better. If you have kids that are picky eaters, you know (laughs) no amount of prayer that you offer is going to make the food taste better for them. We pray, we give thanks to remind ourselves and to recognize that God is our provider. It's a ritual that we go through to point us to a greater truth about who God is. Next, we see the priests in Leviticus. Chapters 8 and 9 are about the consecration of the priests. The first priests that were ordained by Moses were Aaron and his sons. In chapter 10, Aaron's sons died for violating God's standard of holiness in the tabernacle. In the second half of Leviticus, we see the qualifications for priests. The priests were to demonstrate the highest level of moral integrity and holiness. And the priests had to go through their own ritual cleansing in order to perform their duties because the priests, as having the highest standard of moral integrity and holiness, were to represent the people to God. They were the people's representatives to God, and they were God's representatives to the people. And this all points to Christ, who is our great high priest, who offered a sacrifice of himself on our behalf as our representative, as the perfect lamb of God to reconcile us to God. Next, we see purity. Chapters 11 through 15, instructions about ritual purity. The instruction on ritual purity was to remind the people just how sinful they really were. If someone came in contact with bodily fluids, skin disease, mold and mildew, animals that God had deemed impure, or dead bodies, they were considered unclean or impure. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody that touches a corpse is somehow sinful or that they are sinning by touching a dead body. But the laws of ritual impurity were meant to remind them of God's holiness. So a dead body, skin disease, these were things that pointed back to the fall. They were a reminder of death, which destroys life, the life that God intended for them to enjoy. Death that separates us from God because God is the God of life and he can have no part in death. Death is the consequence of sin. So when someone came in contact with these things, it reminded them of sin. It reminded them of their separation from God and they would have to go outside of the camp, outside of God's people and his presence in the tabernacle, further removed from him until the time when they were considered clean again, which would involve a ritual cleansing. This, again, was a reminder of the consequence of sin and the need for atonement. It was a reminder of God's holiness and of the need that they had to be made holy so that they can be reconciled to God. In the second half of Leviticus, there are laws for moral purity, care for the poor, social justice, sexual integrity. So the purity laws in Leviticus 
were about everyday things. It was what they ate. It was their relationships with others. Childbirth, which at Fellowship Church, childbirth is like an everyday thing. (laughs) Cleaning their house, what they wore. And it, it might seem crazy that there were laws for all of this stuff in life, but it demonstrates to us that God cares about every aspect of our lives. His holiness should impact every area of your life. The most ordinary things can point us to who God is. It can remind us of a truth about God. Everything that we do should point to him. It should remind us of who he is, of his goodness, of his holiness. Humanity had sinned, and God's people created obstacles that would prevent them from sustaining a right relationship with God. So God created these laws to allow his people to enter into a relationship with him based on the forgiveness of sins. And they were to maintain that relationship by living according to all of these different, different regulations. And that brings us to the Day of Atonement, chapter 16 and 17. This is at the center of the book, so it's, it's something very important here in the book of Leviticus. And it's the only sacred day out of all of the rituals, the, the ritual feasts, It's the only one that has an entire chapter in the book of Leviticus. And when you consider that there were over a hundred, well, over half a million Israelites, 600,000, there's no way, when you think about how sinful people are, there's no way that a sacrifice could be made for each and every sin that the people committed. So one day a year, the high priest would enter the tent and make atoning sacrifices first for himself and for his family, and then for the entire family of Israel. And all of the different sacrifices that took place throughout the year were kind of wrapped up in the Day of Atonement. There were sin offerings and burnt offerings that would cover the cost of a damaged relationship with God. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood symbolically to cleanse the tent from the sins of the people living in the midst of God. He would also sprinkle blood in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. On that day, God would graciously remove the sins of the people. And and he did this through uh, the symbol of two goats. There was one goat that was offered up for the purification of sins. And by the blood of that goat, it would atone for the sins of the people. And there was another goat called the scapegoat. And, And the high priest would place his hands on the scapegoat, symbolically transferring the sin of the people onto that goat, and then send it out to the wilderness, symbolically removing the sins of the people from the camp. This was all done to reconcile the people of God back to him, to transform them back into the holy people that he called them to be. The Day of Atonement was meant to show the Israelites that they were forgiven, they were renewed, they were cleansed, they were made holy as God calls them to be holy. So now that we've set that up, hopefully that gives you a better understanding of the book of Leviticus, and it lays the foundation for this call to be holy. So look again, Leviticus twenty twenty six. The Lord says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. We see in this verse a command from God and a statement. The statement, look again, is that God is holy. God, again, in his being, he is altogether different from the people that he created. There is no one 
like God. He is holy in many ways that we are not. He is immortal. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing in wisdom. He is all-present in his creation. He is morally pure without exception and can have no part in sin. Since he is holy, anyone who enters his presence must also be holy. And that comes, there comes the command. Be holy because he is holy. The command is for his people to be holy. God is no longer on the mountaintop. He is there in the tent at the center of the camp. This requires the people who are living there in his midst to be holy because he is holy. The command is to be holy. Holy to whom? Holy unto God. Again, to be holy means set apart from something, set apart to God. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, he tells them that he is the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. Therefore, they should be holy. He delivered them. He set them apart from the other peoples, delivered them from bondage, that they would be bound to him in holiness. They have been set free from Egypt so that they could be made holy for God. God has given them instructions throughout this book in order to show them how they are to separate themselves unto him. So for the Israelites, as well as for us, holiness is expressed in how we live. It is carried out by our acts of obedience, following God's commands. So what does it look like in our lives to be holy? What does holy living look like? If holiness is to be expressed in how we live, what is holy living? For the Israelites, it was expressed as a love for a holy God through the constant removal and avoidance of things from their lives that were considered unclean. Along with the obedience to the moral code to love one's neighbor as themselves. And for us, it's not much different. In Christ, we have been declared holy and righteous. No longer guilty of sin. Somebody say amen to that. We are also, by the work of the Holy Spirit, being progressively sanctified, made holy, purified from sin's defilement, and being renewed into the image of God. For us to live holy means to be devoted to God, separating ourselves from the things of the world, the things that God declares sinful, things that are not according to his truth, and separating ourselves unto him and his truth. Holiness requires separation from one thing, separation from what is sinful, and separation to God. To live a holy life means that you reject the things that are sinful. You hate the things that are evil. You have a desire to do what is right and what is good in the eyes of the Lord because your love and obedience and devotion to God demand that. It means that you walk in love. You have a heart of compassion and you seek to glorify God in everything that you do. So how does this translate for us? What does it look like for us? Because again, we have Christ. He has atoned for our sins and in him we have been made holy We've been declared righteous. We are blameless. We are spotless because of his atoning sacrifice. We are not made righteous by our works, so nothing that we do can make us holy because we're declared righteous, we're declared holy, and nothing that we do can take away the salvation that we have. 
and the title of being holy and righteous. So, so the big question is, why be holy? How does this command apply to us, and what difference does it make? And so many passages in, in Scripture and in the New Testament show us that we have been made holy. It's not conditional. And if it's based on nothing that we do, then what's the purpose? Why be holy? Really, what is our motivation to strive towards holy living? So I want to look at this passage today and look at our motivation towards holy living. The the number one, the key motivation to being holy is God's holiness. He wants us to be holy as he is holy. He is our Father, and he said so. That's why you be holy. That is the number one reason to be obedient to him. Because if his people are holy as he is holy, then they can dwell in his presence. Consider the Israelites dwelling in tents, and God himself is dwelling in a tent at the center of the camp. When I was growing up, I had a neighbor named Craig. He actually still lives in the same house. My parents still live in the same house that I grew up in. So Craig still lives there. And Craig has always been known as this, that person. He just has that most meticulously manicured lawn. The, there's not a blade of grass that's out of place. It's cut to the optimal height of grass health. <laughs> Perfectly edged. No dandelions. Just lush, green, shiny grass. He has a, a gravel driveway that's like perfectly level, not a stone out of place. And I'm sure some of you have a neighbor like that, right? They have just the nicest lawn in the neighborhood. Always have fresh mulch, no weeds, no dandelions. Their hedges are trimmed at 90 degrees. They have a a cherry blossom tree that's always in bloom somehow. So imagine, imagine that you have a neighbor like that living across the street, and then imagine that your house is different. You, you step out of the front door, and you look around, and there's, there's some branches and twigs on the ground. There's a spot over there where grass just never seems to grow. There's something growing there. Might be grass, might be weeds. It's overgrown, whatever it is. There's some brown patches around There's some leaves. It's not even fall, but there's leaves in the grass. And then, of course, the trash can got knocked over. So you have, you know, tin foil and papers and those those air bubbles that they put in packages and a lean cuisine box and all this stuff just scattered about the lawn. Now, you might think, my place isn't that bad. But when you look across the street and you see the cover of Better Homes and Gardens, you begin to realize just how bad your lawn really is. And that's how it was for the Israelites. God was their neighbor. He was dwelling in the middle of the camp. So every day they had this reminder of how holy God was and how sinful they were. They had this motivation to be holy because God The holy God was there with them. Every moment, every aspect of their lives was made to serve as a reminder of how unholy they were and how unworthy they were to be in his presence. So that was their motivation to be holy as God commanded them to be. For us, we don't have God living next door in a tent. If you're a follower of Christ, 
If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you confess him as Lord, where does God live? He lives in you. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has cleansed you with the blood of Christ so that he may dwell within you. At the moment of conversion, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. He sanctifies you, makes you holy, and sets you apart for God's purposes. How does that impact you? Is that not reason enough to be holy? And when that God dwells within you, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. He made you holy, and he is working in your life every day to make you more holy, to make you more like Christ. And he does that by revealing uncleanliness to you. That's one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit, is to convict you of sin. The holiness of God affects every area of life. So the Israelites, they had to make choices every day, what to wear, what to touch, what to eat, considering whether or not those things were fit for God's presence whether or not those things would create obstacles and push them further out of the camp away from the presence of God. And the matter of of clean and unclean should be much more real to us. God expected the Israelites to live holy lives. How much more does he desire that for the ones within whom he dwells? When you consider that God dwells within you, It should be imperative that you are considering if the things that you do, that you say, the thoughts that you think, how you act, are fit for God's presence. And you should ask yourself, is this fit for God's presence? The fact that God is holy and has made us holy and called us to be holy should impact every area of our lives. Do we look like holy people? In our homes, in our schools, on 309, on our devices? Does our wardrobe, the shows that we watch, the music that we listen to, does it demonstrate that God's holiness matters to us? Where are the obstacles in your life that need to be removed to bring you closer to God? The second motivation that we have to be holy is God's love for us. Look again at verse 26. I separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God redeemed his people. He separated them from the peoples. He redeemed them out of Egypt when he didn't have to. If you turn over just a couple pages to Leviticus 11, verse 45. He says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He is the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt. He didn't have an obligation to do that. He didn't have an obligation to redeem them. Because even after they came out of Egypt, they had been given the law, they still violated their covenant. They still went after other gods. God knew they would do that. He knew that they would sin against him. Yet he gave them an opportunity to become holy by providing them with the means to do so. Why did he do that? Because he loves his people. He loved his people so much that he brought them out of Egypt, set them apart, and called them to be holy. 
when everything in their lives was a reminder of, to them of their total inability to be holy. So what did he do? He gave. He loved them so much that he gave. He told them how to be holy, and then he provided them with the atoning sacrifices so that they could be made holy. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, 33, you don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 33, 2 and 3, it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sair upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. He loved his people. And this is something that's familiar to us. We think about how much God loved his people. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ laid down his life for his people, for his bride, because of the love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his son to make his people holy so that we could be in a right relationship with him. Why be holy? Because God loved you enough that he gave his only son to make you holy. What else should motivate us toward holiness? Our witness. Look again at Leviticus twenty twenty six. See what God tells his people. Uh, actually, starting in verse 23. You shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Jumping down to verse 24. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. God separated them from the peoples. He's telling them that they're going to be different intentionally. God wants them to be different from the other nations. Don't be like the other nations. Don't be like the other peoples. I have set you apart to bless you and to make you holy. God calls his people to be holy, to be different, to be distinct from the other peoples, from the rest of the world. And it's not for their blessing alone. It's to bless others. And we see how this is carried out in relationships to other people back in chapter 19 of Leviticus. You look at verse 1 and 2 again. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And God then goes on to give them commands on how that holiness is to be lived out in their relationship to other people. Verse 3 talks about honoring your parents. Verses 9 to 18 talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. Verse 33, God gives a command on how to care for strangers. Our holiness is our witness to other people. We see this, we see the same idea echoed in the New Testament in the book of 1 Peter. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God tells his people in Exodus that they will be a nation of priests. And here in 1 Peter, those who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit are called a royal priesthood. God sees us as priests, which means not only should we demonstrate the highest level of moral integrity and holiness, but we are to represent God to other people. Your holy conduct will be a witness to others. Peter tells his readers in the next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Honor Christ as holy by living lives of holiness, lives that honor him, so that you may have the opportunity to share the hope of Christ with other people. God set apart a people for himself to be a blessing to all peoples. The rules and the regulations that Israel was called to follow were to keep them distinct and different and separate from the other peoples, to point the nations to God and ultimately to bring forth a Messiah who would make the way for people of all nations to be saved. So we have this command to be holy, that we should honor Christ in that command by living lives of holiness. And we live in a world that is, that is crude, that is wicked, that wants nothing to do with God. And so as believers, as followers of Christ, we should be different because we are the ones that God has called out. We are the ones that have been separated from the world in order to bring his gospel to the ends of the earth. And that is what we are called to do. So if you're not pursuing holiness in your daily life, it's going to affect your witness. And that is something that impacts eternity. We are to model kingdom living, kingdom holiness every moment of our lives. And that brings us to the final point in our motivation to live holy lives. Look at Leviticus chapter 20 again, starting in verse 24. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. Why did God redeem his people and set them apart and give them instructions on how to be holy. Because he was preparing them for the promised land. So these rituals they would go through, they were meant to progressively make them holy, to prepare them for the land that they would inherit. Because this is how God wanted them to live in that land when they got there. And God does that with us, to prepare us for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. He calls us to continually put off the old self and put on the new self. God is progressively making us holy to prepare us for eternity. And this is a common theme that you see in the New Testament. Ephesians 4 says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Renew your mind. Set your minds on things above where Christ is, right? Put on the new self created after the likeness of Christ in true righteousness and holiness. Every day, we are to be removing obstacles from our lives, sin from our lives, and put on that which bears the image of Christ. Remember, being holy means you are set apart from sin, set apart to God. Holiness requires that you remove old sin patterns, sin habits, things that don't glorify God in your life, and replace them with the pursuit of holiness, with habits, with patterns, with discipline that glorifies God in order to become more Christ-like in our character and in our conduct. So you must remove those things in your life that set you apart from God. Remove those things from your life that God set you apart from. The things that are not fit for God's presence. And put on those things that are fit for his presence. Not lying, but speaking the truth. Not stealing, but honest work. Not being quick to anger, but being patient. Not talking down at somebody, but encouraging them. Speaking the truth in love. Building people up with your words being quick to forgive as Christ forgave you. This is what holy living looks like. So each day we should be seeking to display this kind of Christ-likeness in our lives. Why? Because he desires to progressively form us into what we were meant to be to prepare us for eternity. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until Christ returns. He's preparing us for eternity. When God created man, he created him in his image, and they were in communion. God was in communion with man daily. And since the fall, God has been working to redeem his people, to bring them back to a pre-fall state where God and man can dwell together. A life of holiness is a life that mirrors how we will live when we are in the presence of God. It is a reflection of how we will live for eternity. So we are to be a holy community right now that maintains a testimony of God's grace and mercy through holy living for eternity. We are to be holy, different, and live lives that are evidence that God has something greater than this world in mind for us. We are citizens of his kingdom When Christ returns, he will make all things new, and we will dwell with God in the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 tells us about the new Jerusalem, a holy city where no unclean thing is able to enter, where there is no evidence of sin, and God is always present with his people. That is what God's desire is, and he wants to prepare us for that. He wants a relationship with us. What are you willing to let go of for him? As you're working out your salvation, progressively putting off the old self and putting on the new, you think about, is this fit for God's presence? Another question you could ask is, is this something that I'll do in heaven? And if it's not, 
Here's an easy application. Don't do that thing. An ideal society may not be here right now. But we have no lasting city. We seek the one that is to come. That is God's plan, to dwell with us forever in that city. To be one with him. Christ is going to return one day. And he will return things to the way it was before sin entered the world. We will live in perfect peace with God and there will be no sin. God wants to prepare us for that day today. That is why he sent his spirit to dwell within you, to sanctify you, to make you holy. It is the will of God to make us holy. And it doesn't depend on outward conditions. It's based on God's grace. The Israelites, they had sacrifices and rituals. But those were things that God used to demonstrate truth to them. He came down to dwell among them. He accommodated to their culture and gave them rituals that made sense to them in order for them to realize that their hearts were sinful, that they needed redemption. And he gave them a sacrificial system that he would use to offer forgiveness by his mercy and make them holy. And all of this pointed to something greater, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, came down to dwell among men. He was the perfect, spotless lamb of God who sacrificed himself on our behalf that we could be made holy to dwell with God so that we would be able to stand in his presence for all eternity and proclaim his holiness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word, which you have given us to make us holy. We thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knew no sin, yet he willingly laid down his life so that we could be made holy, that we can be declared righteous as he is righteous, that we could stand in your presence because you love us, because you want a relationship with us. Today, if there are things in our hearts that are not fit for your presence, things that do not glorify you, I pray that your spirit and your word would work in us to cast those things off, to purify us of things that are not clean, And help us by your word, by our fellowship with one another, by your spirit, to put on the things of Christ, to be made more holy, that we would bear his image, that we would be a reflection of the Son of God, and that we would do these things for your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.